I'm going to go ahead and read our passage, and then we'll, we'll jump in here. So 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 14, says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as do, and so does Mark, my, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just a time of worship and just the opportunity to um, center our hearts on you and to get the focus off of ourselves and, and onto you, Lord. And I pray for this time in your word that you would be uh, exalted and lifted high in our hearts. Uh, God, we come before the mighty hand of God and just ask you to move inside of us and challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us with your scripture. Help us to keep our eyes so fixated on Christ that we can't look at anything else. Lord, we pray you'd have your way in our lives. We give you our all. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so last week we wrapped up, kind of went through a, a decent amount of text, but we wrapped up with uh, talking about elders and the responsibility to elders. And just like a quick recap, because I feel like it didn't totally clarify some of these things, just want to like hit it again, and also because it rolls into what he's talking about in the rest of the, the, the text, which is a challenge to the congregation as a whole. Um, so last week we wrapped up the passage with a challenge to elders to shepherd the flock of God, and that this shepherding was characterized by a number of things, and this is what that shepherding is to be characterized by. It's to be characterized by shepherding those among you. And I want to draw this out to say that it says that I, as elder, and Luke, as elder, are to shepherd those among you, not below you, right? The elder is part of the flock. Okay, there's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. It's not like elder is closer to Jesus than some of you are, clo- as, are, are to Jesus. That's not how it is. It's that an elder has been called to serve his fellow body in overseeing what God is doing in our midst. And so it is to shepherd those among you, notice, not below you. There's only one who is above, and that's the chief shepherd. The only hierarchy in the body of Christ is Christ and all else. There's no pyramid here, okay? It's literally Jesus and the body of Christ. So there's not, a, not some system in which you're getting closer to God by your efforts or by your holiness or by your righteousness. Rather, there's Christ as head and all else below. And so as a shepherd, I'm called to shepherd those among me, not below me. And you should also see that. I'm not above you. I'm trying to be obedient directly to Christ as you are also called to be obedient directly to Christ. You're not to be obedient to me. Okay, I'm not here to domineer or, or, or challenge with some legalese or whatever it is, Christian legalese of some kind. 
you are to take your instruction from Christ and see fit that what I am saying is, is resonating with what you know from Christ Jesus and his word. Um, and so it goes without saying, or it should go without saying, that though he counts us as brothers and sisters among, uh, among us, he is the eldest. And though he counts us elders as shepherds, he is the chief shepherd. Uh, he challenges us as elders to exercise oversight, not control. He says to oversee those that are among you, not control them, not put forward your vision, but rather oversee that Christ is the head. Uh, he challenges me that I should shepherd with a willing heart, not just to fill a position, not just because there's a position available and I applied and got accepted to the position, but rather that God has called me to a place. And so for any elder we call in the future, it is a calling, not a filling of role. It's a, it's a calling to serve a people, to serve a body in a willing position. And finally, shepherding is to be done primarily through example um, and, and not just preaching without doing. Okay? As an elder, I'm to primarily be an example of what it is to follow Christ, not a source of information, not a source of wisdom in terms of like, this is where I, this is, how I'm going to just do what Blake says. Not in that sense, but rather in a sense that Blake is saying this or Luke is saying this, and they're also walking that out. And so my primary goal, and it, I do this with fear and trembling, is to say to you, I'm trying to walk out a life with Jesus, and I pray that I'm an example, not someone who's domineering over you and saying, hey, you need to do this and not actually taking the advice myself, not preaching the gospel unto myself. And so this is the challenge that he puts forward to elders. And in response to this, he pivots in the rest of our text. And I wanted to set that up because he's, he's pivoting from that point of talking about the elders among you to this discussion about humility. Actually, two things he tells us, to be humble and to be watchful. So throughout this text, he's going to tell us two things, be humble and be watchful. In verse 5, he turns to the congregation, to y'all, and says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He tells us that we are to be subject to our elders. Within his letter, he's called us uh, as believers to humbly subject to governing authorities, employers, spouses who aren't following the Lord, right? He's called us to these roles of submission to situations where the person is not here for our motive. If, and so the challenge here for him to say, those who are younger in, in your faith, be subject to the elders, is if we are subject, if we have been called to be subject to those whose motives are not for the Lord, how much more so should we subject ourselves willingly to those who God has entrusted to, uh, to care for our souls? So we can take this as, oh, well, there's this person that's quote, more important or whatever because they have elder title, but that's not even the point, right? Like, God is saying there's a purpose in your subjection, right? The purpose in your subjection to your employer is not for your personal gain in this life, but rather so that your employer and your fellow workers can look to you and say, his hope is not in his advancement in this job, right? His hope is not in his political influence that he is gaining by obeying the authority. His his, his motive is in submitting to Christ. 
And so to hear your, your motive and the desire and why you would so see fit as a congregation to say, yeah, I, I so, I'm subjecting myself to Blake as an elder, which, like, saying that is so weird to me. It's like, I feel like I'm 20 still, and y'all that are older, like, you know, know that feeling that you feel like you're much younger than you actually are. So it's very weird to say to you, the reason that you should feel subject to me is this, that my motive is not to gain some, some influence, but rather to point us to Christ. And that your desire and, and goal in subjecting yourself to me is not to like, please me or appease me in any way, but rather to see that, man, this person's walked the road of faith for a while, and I'm going to trust them because they've seen some things that I hadn't seen yet. And so this does require humility because an elder is not qualified to serve based on a worldly standard. An elder is not, or at least should not, be in a position because of economic or political standing, but rather because of calling and confirmation of a congregation that he serves. So, you know, in the world standards, you might have more influence than an elder. You might have more money than an elder, likely, very, very likely, actually, in that case. They're, like, they're, the, the world standard is who should have influence and who we should listen to based on what they've done in their life is not the standard in eldership. The standard in eldership is to be called to and confirmed by the congregation as one who is able to lead and serve a body of Christ. And so, yeah, it requires fleshly humility for us to say, okay, he might not be the most important person in the community, but he's respected, and he's of integrity, and he knows Jesus and follows Jesus. And so on that basis, not on any other basis, on that basis, I'm going to say, I, I trust him with what he's saying and what he's doing. And so the challenge to, uh, to you as a body, and and I would say, since it's to shepherd those among you, I'm inclusive in the membership, so it's kind of a weird, like, organization, because I'm equal, but a leading, okay? So I, too, am now called in these texts to humble myself unto uh, Luke, who's also an elder, right? And humble myself to the, the setting up of of standards for our body of Christ, and if I violate those, will I subject myself to those same things of wisdom, right? And I'm, I'm just as, it's just important, just as important for me to subject myself to the leading of eldership. So humility is required for us to, to say, you know, the, the head of this church is Christ, Jesus is the chief shepherd, and we are submitting unto one another and unto the wisdom the Lord has uh, set forth in establishing eldership. And so he goes on to talk about these two concepts that we continue to uh, roll with throughout this day, and that is to be humble and to be watchful. Verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Of God. In the body of Christ, we are not humbled under the name of a church. We're not humbled by some earthly entity that is here for some amount of time and will turn to dust. I mean, I don't know how many churches have existed over 2,000 years who have come and been for a while and gone. And we've seen churches come and go in our time in Clearwater. It's a crazy thought, right? And so in the, in the body of Christ, our humility 
is not under the name of a, a, a local expression of the body of Christ. That's not where our humility lies. I'm going to subject myself to the elders of a local body, but where is my humility at? It says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So do not humble yourself under the name of a church. Do not humble yourself under the name of an elder, under the name of a leader. This happens a lot, okay? We find our faith and our strength in a pastor. Happens way more than we really attribute to or put our finger on it with, that we're actually finding our strength and our faith under a pastor's name. And the the word is challenging us today to say, humble yourself, not under what pastor says, not under the reputation of a church, not under any leader, but rather humble yourself under the mighty name of God. We have proper humility toward one another because we have humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The men right now uh, are reading through Knowledge of the Holy. I should have drawn a quote up from the book specifically. (laughs) But I just have to convey the spirit of it to you that, like, I think, I don't know, how many people, how many dudes are reading it right now? We got three, four, three or four, okay. Uh, Literally, Justin and I were talking about this morning. The first sentence of the preface, you're just like, all right, I surrender. Like, (laughs) um, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I can't even remember. I got it. I'm oh, sorry. I think, I've, I think I've got it, so I've got to find it. It's just like, I just like, okay, okay, Tozer, whatever, whatever you say, bro. True religion something, right? Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, true religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. True, 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 <laughs> true religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. Dude. All right. All right. Amen. Well, let's go home. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I feel like that's been what Peter is trying to get to us, though, across the whole of 1 Peter, is that we have lost a lot in ourselves, an, an, um, an understanding, an awareness, a submission to the very holiness of God. We, we've lost respect for how holy and majestic our God is. We, we've just, we've kind of like, and I kind of said it earlier, alluded to it earlier, that Jesus speaks of us as brothers, Right? In, in the Gospels, and that's endearing, and unfortunately, we have so clung to that one statement and said, well, God is like a brother to me. I'm just a brother with him. Nah. <laughs> it is a grace to us that he would know us as brothers, but he is holy. There is none like him. He is the creator of the universe who stepped into time and became my brother. Praise God. Thank you for that grace. But he is unapproachable. And so 
I am to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. And this is what Peter's been getting at, is that, man, we have to get an understanding that God is holy and we are not. And it is mind-blowing that he would come down and bring eternity into time. Because he is without time. So how does he step into time and just explode us, right? Like, that's what he's doing, bringing heaven into earth. You can't do that. That, you can't do that. Like, it's not a thing. But he does it. He steps into time and brings about the grace of God. And so we can only have proper humility toward one another, toward our leaders, if we have a proper humility under the mighty hand of God. If you are humbling yourself under the expectations of man, you're, you're missing the gospel. Like, you're, you're totally missing the gravity of what God has actually accomplished. If you're humbling yourself before a man, or before a creed, or before a, a church, or whatever it is, little church, right? If that's what you're humbling yourself to, you've missed it. Because God is calling us to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and not anything else. At the second part of verse 6, he says, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And I don't even know what that means. Like, what? <laughs> like, I think, when I think about exa being exalting, right? I think of, we exalt thee. You know, the song. I exalt thee. Like, how, how is God going to exalt me? At the proper time, he will exalt you. He's going to raise me up somehow. Like, he's going to exalt me. He's going to lift me up out of this humble state. When I am humble before the mighty hand of God, I'm going to feel his presence in a way that it will be exalting. He will lift me at the proper time. Um... Peter is definitely specifically looking forward to eternity, and he's been doing that throughout the, throughout the letter, that he's been saying, listen, you have an eternal hope, a sure hope, one that is beyond every experience that you're going to have in life, one that is uh, beyond this temporal flesh, right? This, this unperishable hope that I've given you. It's eternal glory, and, and this is where your heart should be set on. And, and so that's what he's talking about in, in an ultimate sense, that he will exalt you, though you go through suffering in this life. He will exalt you. You will be resurrected like Christ is resurrected unto an eternal salvation with our Lord. Right? At the proper time, He will exalt you. But I want to challenge you also with the words of Jesus from John 15, 7. It says, He knows the holy desire that He's planted in your heart. It says this, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It's a fun verse that's been used to have all sorts of wishes for Ferraris and big houses and all kinds of things. Um, but, but if you obviously read the verse very closely and meditate upon it, it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, then every desire that is, is in you, he is put in you. And he is going to bring that to bear in his proper time. And so you think about the, the great faith hall of old, of Abraham, who received a promise of a land, right? God said, I'm going to give you a land, and kings are going to come from your line, right? 
Abraham had this promise. He believed that promise so much that he left his home country and went and wandered through trying to figure out where in the world he was supposed to go. He never owned it. This is 400 years later until that promise was received by the children of Israel. Okay? So God put that truth in his heart, that promise in his heart, and he believed it, though he couldn't see it. He believed even when he's about to sacrifice Isaac in a resurrection because he's about to kill the only son through whom he could bear kings and believed that even though he had this son in his 90s, that if God's so fit to bring more, then he would. And so if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, recognizes that God has put a passion in your heart, a holy passion, a worthy passion, and he will bring it. He will bring it. He will not fail his promises. And so he puts something in you, it will come in the proper time. And so no matter what circumstance you're facing, and for the, for the, the church here in the region of modern Turkey, they're facing persecution by the culture. They're facing estrangement from their loved ones because of their faith in Christ Jesus. They're, they're facing employers that are uh, casting them out because of their claim of Christ. Calling them atheists because they believe in Jesus instead of the pantheon. Okay? They're calling them evildoers because of their morality under the headship of Christ. And so he's saying to them, listen, I know the world around you is persecuting for what you believe. But I've given you a promise, and it will be surely fulfilled. You will be exalted as you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And now we look back at this body of believers who is faithful to the word and say thank you for the blood of the martyrs that has been spilled and that the church has grown even still. We will honor them in heaven and praise them. Revelation speaks about the martyrs around the throne. No one else is mentioned. <laughs> Those who gave their lives physically for the name of Christ are going to be at the center of this. Why? Because they know what Christ went through more than anybody else knew. And so humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. He is holy, and at the proper time, he may exalt you. Whether that exalting happens in some small manifestation here is up to God, but it will surely happen in fulfillment when you die or when Jesus comes. He caveats this, um, this call to humility, or he, he adds to it by saying in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the imperative statement to humble yourselves is qualified by uh, the participle casting all your anxieties. So casting all your anxieties is the means through which you are humbling yourself before God. And the reason that I want to point that out is, um, I'm going to read a quote from, uh, uh, from a commentary here in a second, is that there is a connection between your anxiety and pride in your heart. So when God is saying that you should humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, He's saying, if there's any anxiety in your heart, then actually there is some form of pride in you thinking that you were responsible to take care of your circumstances when actually God is in control of your circumstances. And so you're putting yourself on the throne 
as the one who through him everything rests and lies, instead of putting God on the throne and saying, you are worthy and you are above my circumstances, are in my circumstances, and will exalt me in the proper time. And so this, this uh, quote says this from, uh, from the commentary I'm reading through. It says this, Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they're convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. Mm. Dang. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Sorry. How do you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God? You cast all your anxieties upon him. Because he said so, because he's mean, because he wants to torment you. No, because he cares for you. You can trust your father in heaven. And so whatever you're going through, you can trust that he is aware of what you're going through and that he has a complete care for you. And so it doesn't matter what you go through. He is with you and has been present with you the whole time. He cares for you. And so cast your anxieties on him. We've talked about this before. The, the reason God allows circumstances in our life of any kind is not to like, you know, not just to be a testimony to other people. That's true. It is to be a testimony to other people. And that's a grace in and of itself. But more importantly, you are going to testify to what he did through your circumstance because he cares about your heart. He's allowing those circumstances to be because he's caring about forming your heart into one that is humble before his mighty hand. And so when we're humbled under the mighty hand of God, we can believe, truly believe, the familiar words of Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We can believe these words. So often you hear these words and you don't know them yet. And maybe you don't know them yet this morning. Okay, but when you find humility under the mighty hand of God, you have a better comprehension of what he is saying here. You have a better understanding of what he's doing for you. And it says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Once we get out of the way of the Lord and set our pride at the table and walk into his throne room, you can obey Paul's instruction here and not be anxious about anything. You can feel um, truly what he is saying and believe truly what he's saying, that you can go to your Father in heaven in prayer and he will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Just sit with the fact that Jesus stepped out of eternity and brought heaven to bear on earth. This is what this is. That's what Jesus is doing. And his peace then guards your hearts and minds in what he has accomplished. Second, when, when we're humbled under the mighty hand of God, we can obey the instruction of Jesus when he says in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day of its own trouble. So frequently, too frequently, we think about, how am I going to confront tomorrow's problems? How am I, how am I going to get through tomorrow's problems? You guys, I testified to this over and over again. You've 
nauseated about hearing me tell this example, but it's, it's here, okay? So I'm just sharing it because it's life, right? I was, yeah, anxious about getting a hot air balloon, air balloon for a week and a half. I'm glad he didn't ask me, like, months ago to do this. You know, I'm so glad it was spur of the moment because it's so consuming of my thoughts. I was thinking about this day when I'm going to have to go get in a, in a balloon. And, uh, and God says, don't be worried about tomorrow, Right? And so I had to say to my heart on an active basis throughout that week, God, you're in control of the weather. So if the, if the weather's going to be favorable, I guess I'm getting in a balloon. But if it's not, then praise God, let's go to Fort DeSoto. You know, and that's literally was the plan B, right? It, but it really was an anxiousness that I had to submit to Christ. I have no control over tomorrow. I have zero control over it, and I can only control uh, how I'm responding to what God is doing in my life right now and today. And so when we're humbled by the mighty hand of God, we can obey Jesus. And we can say, you know, tomorrow, uh, I can't even, I don't even know if I'll be here. <laughs> Frankly, don't even know if I'll be here. So I've been given today, so um, let today's trouble be sufficient for its own and humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. So first, he challenges us as a congregation to be humble. Second, he challenges us as a congregation to be watchful. Verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's a number of things to be said here. Um, The first is this, who, who is he going to be able to devour? You have an adversary, so let's start there. You have an adversary, his name is the devil, <laughs> okay? There is a spiritual war happening, and so often it is distant in our minds because we're so concentrated on the physical, but constantly there is a battle in the spirit going on of good and evil, and there is an adversary out that's looking and prowling around like a roaring lion, it says. Um, he's seeking someone to devour. Peter has been preaching throughout this whole book the gospel of Christ. And he's been challenging us to hope in the gospel of Christ. Christ's work is completed. Death and the grave and the devil have lost. The battle is over. Okay? So for the Christian, this lion has no teeth. This lion cannot hurt you as a Christian. If your hope is in Christ, this lion is just trying to scare you with its voice. It's just roaring. It's just being loud. But it has no power over you. Because Christ has paid the penalty of your sin. And so no one can hold condemnation over you anymore because the blood of Christ has been sufficient, is sufficient for all things. And so if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, this lion cannot devour you. So when you hear it, you need to say, be gone in the name of Jesus. I will not listen to your lies. So for the Christian... You can't be devoured. There's no devouring to be done. 
The lion can only devour those who do not trust in Christ. If you do not trust in Christ, then this lion is a true threat because your sins have not been covered and you've not trusted in Christ for salvation. The threat is real. And so it's a challenge to our hearts to say, where is my heart? Am I trusting in Christ for salvation? Or am I hoping in pleasing man? Or am I hoping in, in pleasing uh, you know, some organization? Am I hoping in pleasing my own expectations of life? Am I hoping to get to a better place you know, in the next life? You know, is that where my belief is at? If that's where my thought process is, then this lion is a real threat to me. Because the only way that this lion has no teeth for me is if I've trusted in the blood of Jesus. And so to the Christian, the adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, but we need to remind ourselves he has no authority, zero authority. He's a chicken, okay? He has no authority over us. So he says two things about this um, to Christians. And the reason I want to make a distinction is that if you're not a Christian, you can't, you can't actually obey these two instructions, because you don't have Christ on your side. Uh, only if you have Christ on your side, only if you've trusted Jesus for your salvation, only if you've said, Jesus, you're the way, the truth, and the life. You're my Lord and Savior. I bow to you. I humble myself before your mighty hand, and there's no other I care to serve in my life. I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. Like, if that's where your heart is, where we were this morning, then you can stand in these two instructions. But if it's not, you can't. It's not a condemnation. It's just a truth of the spiritual war that is happening. And so I challenge you, if you're not, then do trust Jesus. Because you can also have this authority over the lion if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation. So he says to the church, to Christians, 1 Peter 5.9, the devil is prowling like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. It's the plain, simple instruction. Resist him, firm in your faith. How do you resist? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> Aren't there like some tools we need to defeat a lion? Do we need like a rock? I mean, didn't David have like a rock? He got like, slung it. Like, isn't there some sort of other instruction to how to kill lions. Right? Resist him. In your faith, firm in your faith in Christ Jesus, knowing that God has completed the work of defeating sin and death, knowing that though anything may come upon you in the physical, you should not fear the one who destroys the flesh, but rather the one who has authority over your very soul. And so if you've humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God, you can say to the one who is seeking to destroy you in the flesh, you have no power or authority over me. Take my life. You have nothing on me. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing also this, that you're not alone. So often in the attacks of the enemy, okay, so often in the attacks of the enemy, he isolates us. He finds us and he's roaring at us and we're hearing this roar, and we lose sight of the whole body of Christ. We totally miss the point that, that we're not alone in this. And so the church in this region is going, gosh, this suffering is horrible. This is so hard. And Peter writes to encourage them. 
Be encouraged. Yeah, it's kind of a sad fact, right? But we're all in the same boat. Here in Rome, where he's writing from, we are also being persecuted for our faith. Know this, that you're not alone in your suffering. And we've talked about it throughout 1 Peter, that Jesus predicted ahead of time. He said, listen, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. If, if, they don't like your, if they don't like my morals, they're not going to like your morals either. And so resist the lies of the enemy that would isolate you and make you think that you've been singled out in some way as a special case. And know that this is the battle that the body of Christ is fighting as a whole. And, you know, also like get outside yourselves, right? And go serve one another. If I'm being attacked, chances are someone around me is also being attacked. And so we got to get ourselves out of where we're at and looking only at our selfish perspective and go, man, if there's, if there's something coming, we're all feeling it. You're not suffering alone. The same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So first, you're not alone. Resist him, firm in your faith. Second, uh, resist him, firm in your faith, because your suffering will not last. It won't last. Verses 10 and 11. After you've suffered a little while, and by little while, he's speaking in light of eternity. <laughs> you know, I, I speak in the light of 40 years. And I'm like, man, another whatever, whatever number of years of suffering or whatever it may be, like, how can I withstand, you know, more years of time? And God's going, <laughs> it's a little while. This is tiny, just a little bit. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We talk about uh, forever at times. Uh, you know, again, the balloon thing, I did a wedding, right? And so often in, we're getting married, we're like, till death do us part and forever and ever. And like forever is in our minds. And if you're watching the Sandlot, right? Forever. Right, uh, this whole thing, forever, we have this, this idea of it at times in our life, and we talk about forever, it's just like saying always or never, like we don't understand what forever is. We have no concept or grasp of forever. But God does, and that's why Peter can confidently say, by the direction of Holy Spirit, that after you've suffered for a little while, whether that means that you, you know, were put in jail for your faith in China and kept there for the majority of your life and only communicate with the body of Christ through letters, or if you were Paul and you went throughout the Mediterranean and everywhere you looked, it seemed like they had a jail ready for you, and still you said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Okay, whatever that suffering is, it is only for a little while. Because what Christ accomplished at the cross is eternal glory. And when you die, we will be with him forever. And Sunday will be every day. Like, I, you know, that's awesome. I like Sunday a lot. So anyway, let's do that <laughs> forever. 
Suffering will not last. It is only for this life, and God has secured an eternal glory for you in Jesus. He concludes with some brief greetings uh, in verses 12 to 14. I want to point out uh, one thing as I look at this. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. Um, what I wanted to say about this, Peter speaking briefly, uh, is this, that if, if Peter has seen fit as an elder of the church as a whole to write these things to the church in Turkey, then we ought to follow his example, right? He, he said that elders are to be followed in example. And so if he's saying, I'm an elder, and you need to follow the example of elders, then Peter is seeing fit to look into a situation, look into circumstances of life, and speak and write a letter to them, declaring things about the grace of God. And so this plays into us going, what are we committed to in church? Like, wh- Why? Why is an elder called to serve a body of believers? What is the calling about? Well, he describes it here. Two things. Exhorting and declaring. Exhorting and declaring. Just as Peter saw fit to step aside from whatever was going on in his life, about to be crucified uh, for his faith, to send a letter to Asia Minor and go, this is the gospel. He is provided for you an eternal glory in Christ, and to challenge them, yeah, obey your, uh, obey your governing authorities. Yeah, obey your boss. Turns out he owns you as a master, and you are his slave. Yeah, don't disregard that. Actually, serve him well. I can't imagine being in that space. Yeah, your husband or wife is not a believer. Serve them well as Christ. Peter saw fit to send this letter to exhort, to encourage we too, uh, as elders, any elders are called, we're, we're called to continually encourage one another in the true gospel of God. I'm to exhort you. I'm to encourage you. I'm to point you to Christ because my heart and your heart are prone to wander. We're, we're prone to look at our flesh and look at our circumstance and go, man, I don't think I have any hope here. And you're right, you don't have any hope here. That's why I'm exhorting you to have hope in the future, right? Have hope in what Christ has done and is doing for you. Exhort continually. And second, declare means to bear witness to the true gospel. The only way that you bear witness to what Christ has done is if you see what Christ has done in your life. Okay? And again, that goes back to why God allows these circumstances to walk through your life. He is teaching you something about it, okay? He is wanting you to eventually be able to say to others who will struggle with the same thing you're struggling with today, to say to them with confidence, I know it feels like this is the end of the world and this struggle is never going to leave you, but I can testify that God is good and his love for you is eternal and he can defeat this in the power of Christ the Son. And so, yeah, we stand up here every week and we declare Declare, preach, I'm going to preach, and next week I'm going to preach, and I'm sorry, you get me pretty often, but I'm going to say it for the sake of declaring and testifying that God's gospel is true. God determines the time and place of our service, 
And so I've held on to that verse from Acts 17 for a long time, that God determines the boundary of our dwelling and the place where we're at. And so to me, um, it's beautiful to see like a, a nice full house, you know, see a bunch of people in here. But I, I would be preaching this emphatically if there were two of you. Because the, the results, if you will, are gone. Like I don't even care anymore. <laughs> because God has called me to a proximity. He said, be here and exhort and declare. Regardless of who's there. We have the illusion that we're talking to everybody on the internet right now. <laughs> we're actually just talking to my mom. My mom. <laughs> Maybe some sick people. Hi, sick people. <laughs> you know. But the fact is, when, when God calls an elder, it's not about fulfilling a position. It's about following a calling of God. And so it matters not who is there or who is here. It matters about declaring God's gospel wherever God calls you to declare God's gospel. And so, if that's in a place of spiritual darkness, so be it. We're going to declare God's gospel and stand firm in his truth and let the heavenlies know that the Lord Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords in downtown Clearwater and everywhere. So we'll exhort and declare and we'll stand firm in it and we should stand firm in it alone. Our strength is not found in our influence or our riches. Our strength is not... is. Our strength is found in the, in the gospel of God alone. As Peter said it from the outset of his letter, he said in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I know you've heard that over and over and over again, but it's not right. It's like, that's that's. He broke so many rules. <laughs> you are born again. Someone is raised from the dead. You are raised with him from the dead. Those, that's not normal language. That's language of the king of kings stepping into your life. He has risen you from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept for you in heaven. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in last time. If you have experienced the grace of God in this life and can testify and bear witness to say, God is faithful, and this is how he's been faithful. I've seen it in this exact circumstance, and I will testify that God is good. Then multiply that by eternity. And multiply that by the thousands upon thousands of saints who have also found that Christ is good and that Christ is all. That's the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Can you imagine being around the throne with angels and humans casting crowns down before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It's going to be a beautiful thing. So as we close, I want to go with these few exhortations, to use the terms. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Not before any man. Not before any success you desire or whatever it is. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. If you don't know how holy God is, spend some time learning about how holy God is. Read the Psalms. 
David knew how holy God was. All the singers of Psalms knew how holy God was. Read about Moses, right? Wandering around in the desert, knowing that God had something for him to do, not really sure what it was, and a, a burning bush comes before him. And instead of just going like, oh, that bush is on fire, <laughs> recognize, I mean, bushes get on fire, right? You guys know that, right? The bushes do take fire. <laughs> Moses knew it was the presence of God, and he bowed down before it. He knew that the holiness of God was present, and he humbled himself before the mighty hand. If you don't know how holy God is, find out and humble yourself before his mighty hand. The goodness of the gospel becomes as good to you as you grow in a knowledge of his holiness. As your knowledge of his holiness increases, so too does your comprehension of how good the gospel is for you. If you think God is just like on your level, you are not going to think the gospel is that good of news. God is not on your level. He is the chief shepherd. He existed before time. Jesus e existed before time and will exist after time and is existing over time and is not bound by it in any means. I mean, you could spend your life just dying before that truth. So if you don't know how holy God is, then humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and find out he is holy. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. Man, the devil is so good about telling us we're alone and telling us we're the only one going through whatever we're going through. And he just wants to do everything he can to keep you from accessing the power God has given you in Christ Jesus. Everything he can do, he's trying to do to keep you away from the throne of God, which he's given you free, confident access to by the blood of Christ. So resist the devil and his lies that anxiety has gripped you forever and cast your anxieties not on your own shoulders, but on the shoulders of Christ and humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and allow him to provide peace that transcends every comprehension that knowledge could provide. Third, resist the devil. Um, I was reminded about this last week and I, I didn't bring it up, but I, I have to bring it up this week. It's Genesis 4, verses 3 to 7. And it says this, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And you're like, why are we in Genesis? This is going to be a really long sermon, Blake. Why are you doing this to us? Um, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had a regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So take stock of the fact that the Lord is the weigher of our hearts, okay? And he saw the heart of Abel as pure in his offering. And he saw the heart of Cain as impure in his offering. Abel's offering came from 
fleshly motive. Cain's offering came from fleshly motive. Abel's offering came from a motive of pure devotion to God. But because God had no regard for Cain's offering, Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, so the Lord is speaking to Cain, who just provided an insufficient offering in heart. The Lord is speaking to him directly. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And I bring that up to say, you know the story of Cain and Abel. You know that the Lord came and warned Cain and said, listen, your heart is not right. And sin is crouching at the door so long as your heart is not right. If your heart is not right in your approach to the mighty hand of God, if you've minimized who God is and just like brought your second best to him, is what we're thinking Cain did. Abel brought his first fruits and Cain brought second best of his own stuff. Didn't matter what he brought. He just needed to bring his first to God. The Lord says, if you do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain had an, an opportunity here to repent and believe God in his word. God is speaking his word to Cain. Sin is at your door. And if you honor me with your whole life, then you will rule over sin. But if you do not, its desire is to destroy you. It is contrary to you. It is going to try and rule over you. And so... You all know your hearts. I don't know your hearts. Holy Spirit knows your hearts, and you know your heart. Resist the devil. Because sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is contrary to you. It desires to consume you. And so resist it with all you have. Acknowledge that there is a spiritual and physical consequence to allowing sin to stay in your life. In the circumstance of Cain, it resulted that he murdered his brother. You think Cain was growing up going like, yeah, I hope I get to murder my brother someday. That's a real life goal that I have, right? No, it's not a life goal that Cain had. It's a reality of a, of a situation inside of his heart. He became bitter and jealous toward what God approved of in Abel instead of listening to God and repenting himself and coming to understand what his offering ought to be. And so if you're wrestling with something in your heart that the, the devil is lying to you about, resist him. Take it seriously. Do not think, oh man, I'll just deal with it tomorrow. Cain dealt with it tomorrow. And tomorrow didn't look so good. Resist the devil. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter says, resist the devil firm in your faith. He's a roaring lion, but he has no authority over you if you're in Christ. 
And finally, in season and out of season, preach the gospel. God has called you to this time and place, to your work, to your friends, to your family, to whatever it is, that you might bear witness to the gospel of God, that it is true, and that it is the most beautiful truth that you could walk in in life. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're challenged, encouraged by it. We, uh, and God, we're, we're so insufficient. We're so lacking. Um, and we don't say that to just um, be ingenuous about it. Um, we say that in recognition of how holy you are. And, and God, we also don't say it to stay there um, because we're just recognizing that um, though we're so broken and though we're so small and though we're so insufficient and though we're so um, messed up, God, like you love us still, even so, and God, just more and more every day, we uncover stuff in our hearts and we're going, man, that's, a, that's rough. I can't believe that's in there. But it is. And even still, you died for me. 2,000 years ago, you died for me. And you knew my heart. Then, before you died, you knew my heart, God. And so we just thank you and praise you that though we are insufficient in ourselves, you are mighty, and your hand is so mighty that it would save a sinner such as me, and restore me, and confirm me, and establish me as your son. And so God, we will give you praise. Every day we will praise you and honor you, Lord, for what you have done no man can do. There is none like you. And you chose to come and die for us. We're unworthy of it, God. And yet you call us worthy. And so we're eternally grateful. And we give you all our days, Lord. All our praise, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.